Welcome to this week's episode of The Horse Race, your weekly look at the top elections and campaigns in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Lauren Dzenski, author of the Politico Massachusetts Playbook. So uh, there was another storm, and that is why we are coming to you a day late. Yes, we thought it was going to be yesterday. We thought it was going to be big. Turned out that it was today and not very big. The um, Snore Easter, <laughs> if you will. Right. I like that name much better than the Four Easter, which is what, <laughs> over my strong objection, Lauren had taken to calling it before this. It's not just me. It's everyone, Steve. No, it's, it's, a, it's not a good name. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, but that's why we're late. So our apologies for that. But it, do, it does mean that we got a, a bit more WBUR poll data um, that we can talk about because it's been we've had a poll coming out on WBUR sort of progressively throughout the week. And this morning, some numbers on on gun policy came out, so we'll be able to talk about those since we are recording a day late. So there are there is a silver lining. Lucky you, listeners. <laughs> but first, we are going to talk about our revolution, Massachusetts. Uh, we will sit down with one of the group's leaders for a deep dive into the newest player in democratic politics in a conversation that I think everyone's going to really enjoy. Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested to hear uh, sort of how the group is formatted, particularly, and what they hope to get done in 2018. We'll also be talking about polling on the U.S. Senate race here in Massachusetts, so lots to get to. Um, so let's dive right in. So we finished caucus season and conventions will be here soon enough. And one of the rising players in democratic politics is Our Revolution Massachusetts, the state-based wing of the Bernie Sanders-affiliated Our Revolution. So here to give us a primer on the state's newest progressive organization is Nicole Mosalem. Nicole is the co-chair of the Coordinating Committee for Our Revolution, which provides oversight for the state organization as a whole. Nicole, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So first, um, ORMA, I think, is new to a lot of people simply because it is a new organization. So can we start out by talking about kind of how it came to be and really what it stands for here in Massachusetts? Well, I think in, in the context of the last presidential election, well, you know, we all know what happened on the plus side of that, um, we're seeing a reinvigoration of people getting involved in local politics in paying attention to what their elected representatives are actually doing. And so this is what our revolution is capturing right now. People became inspired by the message of Bernie Sanders that we are no longer doing politics as usual. And this is about the average American. And this is what our revolution is all about. So it's, although it was sort of inspired by the energy of the Bernie Sanders campaign, it's more focused on local races from what you're saying. Exactly. So if you really want to make a change in politics, you have to make a change at the local level. You have to get people involved in their school committees, in their city councils, because really local is where the biggest impact is, and then you'll see it filter on up. So talk a little bit about how we're seeing that here in Massachusetts. Like, one of the things that I've kind of come to understand in, in covering our revolution in Massachusetts is that there's all these different ORMAs in different parts of the state, in different cities. How do those different organizations kind of foster the, the down-ballot um, races here? Well, it really is from a ground-up perspective. Each city has its own issues that are important to the people who reside there. Uh, I come from Malden, and one of our big issues right now is lead pipes. We have a lot of lead in our water, and we're seeing its impacts. It's been that way for a while. So while that might be important in Malden, it may not be so important in Cambridge. 
So we really need to look at the local flavor. We have local affiliates. Uh, the state organization right now sees its role as helping these local affiliates get their feet on the ground, help them with the organizational process. Uh, what does it mean to file for your tax status, to you know, integrate within uh, you know, the Office of Campaign and Finance? you know, all of these small details uh, administration-wise so that they can focus on what they do best, advocating for the local issues. So how many local chapters are there actually in Massachusetts right now? I do know that we have around 29 elected reps to the Representative Council. That includes our issues-based caucuses. So that would be local affiliates and caucuses. So with local affiliates and, you know, statewide coordinating committees, I mean, it's starting to sound like a political party in a way. Is that the long-term vision or how does this live going forward? What's what's the organization look like going forward? It's still very much a work in progress. As you stated earlier, we're a very young organization <laughs> and we'll be having our general assembly coming up in May, actually. And that's something that we will be asking our membership. What is your vision for ORMA and where do you see us going collectively as a movement? One of the things that it seems like very frequently comes up in terms of ORMA compared to other political organizations is that very grassroots vibe, that very grassroots feeling. Talk a little bit about how that works within the organization itself. Is this something where members are, you know, frequently talked to? Like, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm asking the organizational structure of ORMA. That's, that's really what I'm kind of trying to get at here. Well, really, it was only a few months ago that we passed uh, what we call our governing model, um, how we've chosen to organize ourselves. And we really do make it, uh, you know, affiliate-centered, affiliate-based. So each affiliate has uh, one representative on the representative council. And then from the representative council, we have seven individuals who have been elected to the coordinating committee. And the coordinating committee uh, has two co-chairs who help to uh, coordinate the functions of the coordinating committee, the representative council, and the general assembly. So we're considered the co-chairs of all three bodies. Uh, and we do, um, so we help everyone communicate well with each other. We want to make sure that this piece over here fits well with this piece over here. We also want to take a look at not reinventing the wheel. We want to reach out to other organizations, see what they have done, what's worked and what hasn't worked, and integrate that into the, the greater whole. So let's move on then to, to, to specifics in terms of actual election involvement. How, how would you say our revolution, Massachusetts, will get involved in this year's elections? Will there be specific endorsements? or there criteria that you've set on for endorsements? What, what does the involvement look like for this year? We are coming up right now with a process for a statewide endorsement. We really don't want to, you know, step on anybody's toes. When it comes to local representation, it needs to come from the local affiliates. So as far as, you know, cities and towns and things of that nature, it will be up to the local affiliates to decide on their endorsement process and to support the candidates that they endorse. As well as regionally speaking, we have state reps coming up this year. I believe... Um, you know, for me personally, what I plan on pitching to the representative council is having a process where each local affiliate that's in that district, uh, you know, casts a vote for that particular endorsement and 
you know, whoever gets the most wins, basically. And as far as statewide endorsements, that's going to have to come from ORMA, the organization itself, from or, uh, our revolution, Massachusetts. One of the things that I want to touch on is the gubernatorial endorsement process that kind of happened earlier this year in terms of Bob Massey, where there was an attempt to have a statewide endorsement, and then it kind of didn't work out. Can can you tell us a little bit more about what happened there? Uh, I think just basically what happened was as a young organization, we had individuals who were very eager to get their foot in the door in a very important race. But we also have to realize that we need to be open, we need to be transparent, and we need to make sure that everybody gets a voice at the table, especially when we're doing an endorsement for a statewide position. And that's why we went ahead and we took a look at the feedback that we received directly from our members who said they just didn't have enough information at the time to be able to make that decision. And it was a tough call, but we had to honor what the voice of our membership, the the voices of the ones who are actually on the ground and the ones who, if we do conduct an endorsement and, and give that to a candidate, they'll be the ones who are knocking on doors for them, collecting donations for that candidate, speaking to their friends and their neighbors about it. So we want them to be involved and feel passionate about that as well. So is that is that sort of what's anticipated then after endorsements are made? There's there's a on the ground, you know, the people in our revolution will then work on behalf of that candidate. Or, or in other words, are there what what happens to a candidate once they're endorsed by our revolution, Massachusetts? Well, we we take in endorsements very seriously. It's uh, a commitment to that candidate that we will give them our full-fledged support. And they can count on door knockers. They can count on volunteers for their campaign. They can count on people who are going to make phone calls for them. And, of course, as we all know in politics, they're going to make that strong one-on-one endorsement to their neighbors and their own personal networks. So that's why we want to make sure that when we look at this endorsement, our members need to be behind it 100%. And what kinds of numbers are, are you talking about? I mean, how many members or uh, I don't know what the term would be, but how many people in our revolution would potentially be available to do that sort of thing? Statewide, we have a few thousand members at the moment. Uh, and we're working on collecting more in our database. But we do have a good, strong core group of volunteers that have been coming forward, and we have more coming forward every day. So in terms of, you know, traveling into the future, if you will, I want I want to kind of define what a successful 2018 in Massachusetts would be, you know, for our revolution, Massachusetts. Day after election day, you know, you and the other, you know, folks that are involved in the organization look back at the year and kind of how the election played out. What for you will define a successful midterm? I would say holding candidates um, elected and unelected accountable to the issues. I mean, last year we had a wonderful uh, state democratic convention where we passed one of the most progressive platforms in our history. And we really want to make sure that all candidates coming forward are candidates that support and act, more importantly, act on that platform. Just to, you know, just to close a little bit, um, 
what's something that people need to understand about our revolution? Like, if you can set the record straight, what's one thing that you could tell people about this organization here in the state? I would say that we're just like you. From what I have seen of the members of our revolution, these are people, young and old, newcomers and people who have been at this for years involved in the political process. And they have all been inspired to get involved and hold their elected representatives accountable to the American people and the people who reside within the state of Massachusetts. Okay. All right. Well, Nicole Mosalem, co-chair of the Coordinating Committee for Our Revolution, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So new polling out this week has some bad news for Elizabeth Warren's Republican challengers. The vast majority of Massachusetts voters have no idea who they are. That's coming from a new WBUR poll out this week. And as usual, when new WBUR polls come out, we're going to take a closer look at them with Steve because Steve conducts the WBUR polls. So thank you, Steve. Yeah, no, I'm, this, this poll has been fascinating. So first of all, to start off, this is a registered voter poll. Um, we haven't gotten to doing likely voter polls, though we will get to that a bit later, um, sort of later on this year. Uh, th this particular poll, though, is looking at all registered voters in Massachusetts. Um, one so, of it's, the, so it's like a general election type thing. Well, not, not exactly. I mean, this isn't, this isn't the voters who will turn out in the general election. And one of the things that's been interesting about 2018 is that that our typical expectations about midterms and who might turn out are actually being challenged. So figuring out who a likely voter is is going to be interesting this year. Um, in the special elections we've had both in 2017 and so far in 2018, we've had a different set of voters come out. We're seeing this big wave of sort of Democratic enthusiasm that's pulling more Democrats out that might not typically vote in special elections. And, you know, that could happen in midterms, too, where we have sort of a different set of voters turn out in midterms as well. So you're saying this Democratic wave can kind of bear out in polling in the future? It could, but, you know, the challenge is figuring out who a, who a likely voter is because the conventional way of doing it might not necessarily apply as clearly. So, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see uh, likely voter models looking very different depending on who the pollster is and, you know, polls on the horse race, so to speak. Um, not the podcast. <laughs> no, the matchup between candidates could actually look quite different as we move ahead. Uh, but anyway, I'm getting way too far off on the wrong track that's that's it <laughs> so we're a, in the weeds yeah that's a we're train thing weeds. that's not a horse race <laughs> back thing. to the back to the registered voter poll though. yes registered voter poll so the the poll finds elizabeth warren far ahead even further ahead actually than where she has been um and i think you've identified what is the sort of the major takeaway from this which is that the republican candidates really aren't that well known at all and this isn't you know like the first week of the campaign. This isn't like they just announced last week that they're running. These candidates have been running for months, you know, raised hundreds of thousands or even donated millions of their own dollars to their campaigns in the case of John Kingston. And you still have in the 70 and 80 percent range who say they've never even heard of the Republican candidates. Yeah. So it's it's Republican State House Representative uh, Jeff Deal. You have Beth Lindstrom and you have John Kingston, all of which have massive gulfs between uh, their name recognition and Elizabeth Warren's favorability. Steve, what's what's the significant takeaway here? I mean, what what do we need to consider, especially in terms of timing, which I think is really crucial here? Well, Elizabeth Warren's uh, favorable numbers, I think, are ones that she'll be happy with and her campaign will be happy with. I mean, they're not sparkling. They're not Charlie Baker up in the 60s, 70, 75% range. But um, she's been about where she is. At 53% favorability. Yeah, 53%. You know, other polls, she's 55, 54, somewhere in sort of the mid-50s, pretty much since she was elected. That's where she's been. Um, it's, you know, she's been this sort of polarizing figure, which it sounds bad in a way, but 
part of what it means is that her supporters are very firmly in her camp or have been very firmly in her camp. And despite all the national noise and all the sound and the fury and the you know, insult, trading insults with the president of the United States, the numbers have not even budged. Um, so, so encouraging in a way for her because it suggests at least that a you know, rough and tumble campaign, her numbers are pretty strong or at least pretty reliably about where they, they have been. Especially when you have three Republican challengers who are trying in their own different ways to to really go after her. And that clearly, at least, is not showing up, at least with the registered voters that, that you've spoken to. Yeah. And I mean, a, a big subset of these will be likely voters as well. I wanted to ask you a bit about what that meant for the Republican challengers, because earlier on in the campaign, there was this suggestion that, that we're going to see this huge amount of national money because people just wanted to um, sort of knock Elizabeth Warren around a little bit before 2020 and sort of diminish the, her poll numbers a little bit, even if she ended up winning the Senate campaign. But you start to see, you know, 30 plus point leads for Elizabeth Warren. Does that change that calculation at all? Yes, it does. Uh, that's That's been a really interesting kind of narrative to follow because – like you said, Steve, over the last year or so, the initial conversation had been national Republicans were interested in the the challengers to Elizabeth Warren in the Senate race in the hopes that they would weaken Warren ahead of a 2020 presidential run. So it's the idea of a death by a thousand paper cuts. If, if viable Republican challengers can go after Warren and uh, weaken her stature, then then that's going to position Republicans well to kind of take her on subsequently. But these Republican candidates, all three of them, are showing that they are not catching fire with voters. So for Republicans who are looking at other competitive races around the country, it simply does not make fiscal sense or political sense to invest in candidates that are not catching on with voters here in Massachusetts, be they Republicans or general election voters. So the initial narrative of the 2018 Senate race being a way for Republicans to weaken Warren has changed. And now the lack of viability by her challengers means that there's it's less and less likely that we're going to see outside Republican spending in this Senate race. It also seems like it could become self-defeating at some point because the last thing you want is to dump a bunch of outside money and have her still win by 30 because in a way that would have the opposite effect, which would be to make her look even stronger rather than you know potentially dragging her poll numbers down a little bit and showing that she can be beaten before 2020. You know, it- Instead, it makes, you know, it makes her look stronger. Exactly. And in the conversations that I've had with national Republicans who are looking at that, you know, these are Trump style Republicans. They basically say that, listen, it's not worth it for them to try and fight Elizabeth Warren on her own turf, if you will, in Massachusetts. They're much happier to go after her in Iowa, in South Carolina, um, you know, maybe even New Hampshire, in, in places where they're more comfortable waging that battle and where she her support is much less entrenched. Interesting. So in a way, fast forward into 2020 and just starting 2020 early rather than focusing on trying to you know, drag her poll numbers down here in 2018. 
Exactly. We were talking about one race, but we're really actually talking about 2020 here, which um, is good for us in the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Full employment, permanent employment. Um, We've had some questions about demographics. I think I'd just say that it's really not worth digging too much in the demographics when you're talking about leads of this size. You know, she's leading. She has a huge lead among even independents in Massachusetts. Republican has to win about two to one among independents and Elizabeth Warren's winning independents. So it's not even close. Um, I'd say you need a much higher number for name recognition, you need to close that gap a little bit, then it's worth starting to look into, you know, what's the size of the gender gap? Where does she, you know, where does the challenger need to make up in terms of uh, support among independents and siphoning off Democrats and young people and all that sort of thing at the moment? just got to pick up some steam, got to, those numbers just need to move um, before it's worth digging in. Speaking of independence, Steve, I want to ask you about your polls finding on independent candidate Shiva Ayudari, the guy who claims to have invented email. Yes. So that was interesting because when we did the last poll, he was still saying he was going to run as a Republican. Um, this, this time, since that last poll, he said he's going to run as an independent and is showing between 7% and 9% support, um, depending on the matchup. So some uh, some of, some of the reason that there's a larger gap in, in this poll than there was in the last poll is that the support that a Republican might previously have gotten, some of it is going to Ayodore. Whether that continues, hard to say. Um, often what happens in, when you have an independent running, particularly one that doesn't necessarily have high name ID, is people hear independent and they think, oh, somewhere in the middle of the political spectrum, that sounds good, not a Republican, not a Democrat, I'd like to see that. And then as the election draws closer and they learn more about the independent, some of that support sort of bleeds away some of it um, and and voters sort of go back to their partisan corners. So will it be 7% to 9% on election day? Hard to say, but that's one of the reasons why that margin is bigger now than it was in November. Yeah, I'm I'm very curious to see how that plays out and if that is maintained, simply because if this race tightens between Warren and the Republican, you know, who makes it into the general, um, uh, a couple points going to Shiva could spoil any sort of lead by a Republican. Obviously, we just had a long conversation about how the Republicans aren't catching on, so Warren should be fine, but more more chess to, yeah, to keep an eye definitely. on. Definitely. I mean, if it does tighten up, you're right, because his, you know, his more conservative positions would suggest that that's where any support he got would come from. Um, so if it were to be close, then you'd, you'd certainly see a lot more attention being paid to those, the, whatever uh, size of support he has by Election Day. Absolutely. So moving on to our third segment, this is the same poll, Steve, that you did, but it's a different thing. Uh, you looked at support for gun laws here in Massachusetts. Steve, your poll finds wide support for a bill currently being pushed by students walking out of class known as the ERPO bill. What else did you find here? Right. So those of you who are looking for more policy-oriented polling, uh, this poll that we did for WBUR has everything. It's got you know the horse race numbers we've just gone through. It also has a lot on policy. It's got stuff on global warming. It's got stuff on the tax bill. And we did a lot on, on gun policy here in Massachusetts. We looked at the, the so-called ERPO or red flag bill, which the way we phrased it in the poll was prohibiting people found to be a risk to themselves or others from owning or possessing guns. Um, this was one of the key demands of the student protesters and widely supported by Massachusetts voters. So we found 89% support for this proposal. We found pretty strong majorities actually for a bunch of different policy proposals. Um, raising the age to 21 got 79% support, um, 68% support for banning high-capacity magazines, um, and a couple others also got majorities. 
The reason that I found the ERPO bill particularly interesting is, is one that you pointed out, and I'd like to ask a bit more about what the situation is on Beacon Hill. This ERPO bill is one of the key demands of the student protesters, particularly the students who have been walking out of class and um, you know, walking out of class for some weeks now. This is one of the things they're asking about. Is there any sign of progress up on Beacon Hill? Are they going to get what they've been asking for? Yeah, this is very much a part of the conversation that's happening right now. House Speaker Robert DeLeo, who has been you know pretty progressive and out front on gun laws, on passing gun laws, on, on bolstering the state's gun laws, um, has said that, you know, he um, and, you know, folks in the House are, are having conversations on how to strengthen those laws. And, and I think that, you know, to see something that would um, include aspects of the ERPO bill, if not the entire thing, is is pretty fair to, to expect here. Um, in, in terms of the student protesters actually calling for a specific piece of legislation. I just want to note how rare that is almost. I think when when you talk about activism and you talk about protests and the savvy that we've seen from these student protesters, not only in the sheer number of them that showed up in the past week over the walkout, um, but but the fact that they're specifically calling for legislation, they have the, the representatives who authored the bills coming on and talking about the bill. Like it's, it's just really like remarkable savvy that these students are showing. And I think that you know, that just honestly just needs to be acknowledged in this entire conversation. Yeah, what are some of the other ways that's that's uh, that's shown up? I mean, you you said in terms of asking for a particular piece of legislation, what are the other things that, that these uh, protesters are doing that we don't often see from activists? I mean, I think it's the, the repeated kind of consistent emphasis on the conversation itself. There was a, um, like, there was like a forum type thing earlier this week uh, with Senator Ed Markey, um, that was at Aeronaut Brewing with alumni of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. It's just been this this consistent kind of drumbeat. And even in terms of the, the conversation and outreach to the press, it's been really impressive to see how these students are able to articulate their points so well and to talk about, you know, why they support this specific piece of legislation, what they expect to see, and how they're really getting supporters to rally around it. But one of the things that you've talked about and that shows up in the poll is that people already support the bill. So it's not like these students are necessarily trying to turn public opinion necessarily. Yeah, that's, that is interesting to me because we also asked about just support for the student protests in general and found over 70% support of voters support what they're doing. So, you know, is it a protest? That's an interesting question, you know, because in a way it's, they're calling for something that people already want. You know, their parents, you could see these voters as like what their parents think. And most of them like the idea. You know, you see this show up in some of the protests where parents are also there registering people to vote or like, you know, helping the students out with various parts of the protest or bringing food and so forth. Very different picture than, you know, what you imagine for sort of a student protest where the students are advocating for something and crying crying out for something that the parents think is a bit crazy. You compare that with what we're seeing in this protest, and the students, by and large, are both doing something that, that we'll just say, the grown-ups or the adults approve of, and they're asking for things that, that the grown-ups approve of, um, whether it's this ERPO bill, whether it's banning high-capacity magazines. You know, they've got a majority support behind the things that they're asking for. Uh, just quickly, what are some of the other policies uh, that, that you pulled on that, that 
voters responded to here. Yeah, so the the other, the most controversial one, of course, nationwide, has been the idea of arming teachers and school staff to defend against school shooters. That's how we phrased it in this poll. Um, we found 29% support for that, so not a majority on that one. We also just asked about outright repeal of the Second Amendment. Only 28% supported that, so, right, so not even close to majority. So the only thing more unpopular than arming teachers in Massachusetts is abolishing the Second Amendment. Yeah, so what I took from that is that this is not like a knee-jerk, you know, we need to get rid of all guns or anything like that. It's just... Uh, um, a rebalancing. You know, we asked about which should be the priority. Should it be maintaining the you know rights to own firearms, or should it be protecting people against gun violence? Found that there, the people are much more likely to say the priority should be the latter, so protecting people against gun violence. But that's not to say that they want to repeal the Second Amendment. They just want to rebalance and rebalance um, sort of where the policy is and change some of the individual laws. And it's um, you know that's the same things we're hearing from the protesters. Very much so. Very interesting stuff. So moving on to the things we're watching, and I'm going to sound like a broken record when I say this, but the things that I continue to watch are ballot questions, and particularly this time is fair share. Uh, This was, again— The so-called millionaire's tax. Millionaire's tax, Prop 80, whatever you want to call it, the thing that would increase um, taxes on incomes over a million dollars in Massachusetts by adding a 4% surcharge. Um, The reason that I'm watching this, because— is because I've heard increased skepticism lately as to whether or not this actually makes the ballot. So it seemed like before the SJC case um, that we heard about a couple weeks ago on the pod, um, what the arguments were before that, it seemed like people were kind of saying this is going to make the ballot, and there wasn't really that much discussion about whether or not whether or not it would. And and I I'll just say I've heard a lot more people expressing skepticism about that question lately. Um, the reason that, in addition to just the the implications of the question itself and and what that would do to state budget, it also changes the calculus on the negotiations going on behind the scenes in the state legislature between proponents of things like the sales tax, minimum wage, um, paid family leave, because the sales tax particularly has revenue implications. So if you have $2 billion of revenue that you're getting from fair share, you could potentially think about something like the sales tax, which could take a billion or more away in terms of revenue. If you don't have fair share, that makes that argument a lot more difficult. Absolutely. And for me, this this is also kind of negotiation-based. It's action in the Senate. We have a new Senate president in waiting. It's Senator Karen Spilka. She has collected all the votes. She has amassed enough votes to become the new Senate president. And there's also some potential changes in the chamber as well. We have another outgoing senator, Kathleen O'Connor Ives of Newburyport, and current state rep Diana DiZoglio has said that she is interested in making a run for that Senate seat. Diana DiZoglio's name is familiar uh, to a lot of people because of last week when she spoke out against the House and specifically House Speaker Robert DeLeo's handling around nondisclosure, sexual harassment issues. So she is clearly looking for another opportunity in a new chamber, leading to more turnover, things like that. So the... There's there's some there's some bubbling uh, interest in in the Senate. Yeah, so a whole bunch of new of, of new senators either who have already been elected. You know, I've got, had some unopposed elections and some other elections recently, um, and it looks like some more to come. We asked the official horse race correspondent for the state Senate issues, uh, former Senator Ben Downing, what he thought of of the, the apparent new Senate president choice that we have. He said, the surprise for me isn't that a candidate ultimately put together the votes. It's that it happened when it did, before the end of the formal session, during investigations both inside and outside of the Senate into the conduct of the former Senate president, with major legislation pending, and while ostensibly, Senate President Chandler is trying to lead the body. 
So there really is some complexity, I think, that the announcement of Karen Spilka as the Senate president in waiting brings, and how that unfolds will be very interesting to watch. Exactly, and we'll probably have to have our uh, horse race senior Senate correspondent, the, the former Benator, Ben Downing, Hi. on it at some point to parse it more. Nonetheless, uh, we've come to the end of our time on this podcast, and so it is time for trivia. First, we need to answer last week's question, which is sticking in the theme of gubernatorial portraits. In the official portrait of former Governor Mitt Romney, what is sitting on his desk and what does it represent? The answer, Romney Care, or at least a folder symbolizing the law with a medical emblem on the front. That's right. And uh, the winner this week is Ryan Naismith for tweeting us the answer first. And he wins a mention on this week's episode of The Horse Race. Congratulations, so congratulations Ryan. Ryan. You've just received your prize. <laughs> Anyway, so for this week, here's the question. Uh, governor Michael Dukakis was the longest serving governor in the, st- in the history of the state of Massachusetts. The question is, who served second longest? And I'd say send us your answers in all the usual ways, all the usual formats to Horse Race Global Headquarters. And this week only for 100 extra Horse Race Trivia points, send it in on an old yellow piece of paper with your very large signature affixed to the bottom. I would also take an anonymous potato. Yes, always, though. That's always, al- always. always. Yes, of course. <laughs> Anyway, that does it for us this week. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Lauren Dzenski of Politico. Our producer this week and every week is Hannah Schnatry. Find us online wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you so much for listening.